Oh, come on, you can try better than that. Good morning. Awesome. You know, I, I count it a real privilege to be here this morning. As, uh, as Kelly said, I was sitting exactly in the same space you are about 10 years ago, and I don't know if it's wise to give me the pulpit because I failed a lot of my classes. But, you know, I'm here anyway, so now you've got to deal with this. So. <laughs> uh, like I said, my name's Dan, and uh, I uh, have a beautiful wife. Her name is... Elizabeth, uh, which, which one button is this? I can't make it work. Okay, yeah. There, you can say, and I have a beautiful son named James. That's, that's him right there. Everyone say, ah. Yeah, look at that. That kid is made for the... Uh, look at that. He's such a cute kid, and he is just amazing, and I, I've had such a good life, and a lot of that has to do with the, the way that God has worked in my life and the blessings that he did, and a lot of it has come through prairie, and so I'm very thankful to be here this morning and share with you uh, in the time we have God's word, and I hope that it's, it's edifying to you this morning. I want to say something before I start, and that's this. I've sat in this chapel for a really long time, and, I, and I'm not exaggerating when they say this. Just when we were worshiping right now, I've never been in a chapel other, where there was so much soul in the worship as I just heard. And I think that was super cool. So I think that as you're here right now, I don't think that there's a better thing that you could be doing with your time than being at Prairie and studying for your degree and your field and learning about the Bible. Even if God takes you in a completely different direction, studying the Word is not a waste of time because the Word tells us that godliness is, has, holds promise for this life and the life to come. So I'm very thankful that you're here today. You're not wasting your time. This morning, I've been asked to share with you in the time that we have uh, the connection between Jesus and Leviticus 16. That's sort of where we're going in, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And more importantly, I'm going to share with you why you should care about the connection between Leviticus and Jesus. So with that, I'm, I'm going to read you a passage of scripture this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about Leviticus. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. Leviticus 16, uh, subject matter is about the Day of Atonement, a practice in ancient Israel. And in it, it outlines very specifically how you to go about the day, when that day occurred, what the priest is supposed to do, what the purpose of it is. And uh, if you have time, I'd encourage you to read it on your own. But I'm just going to read the last few verses for you this morning and uh, tell you what, what, and make a connection between the gospel and Leviticus 16 this morning. So I'm going to read, and what I want you to do is, as I read, there's going to be text highlighted in red. And what I'd like you to do is, when you see the text highlighted in red, I'd actually like you to read it aloud. Everyone cool with that? Smile and nod. Okay. This is the reading of God's word from Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and do not do any work, whether native-born or foreigner residing among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you and to clean you from all your sin. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must, you must 
deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make an atonement. He is to make a sacrifice of linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place for the tent of the meeting and the altar and for the priests and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. This is the reading of God's word. So with the limited time that we have, I'm just going to actually tell you right away what the connection between Jesus and Leviticus 16 is, and that's this, is that the cross is the true and better version of the Day of Atonement because it deals with all sin once and for all. Let me say that one more time. The cross is the true and better version of the Day of Atonement because it deals with all sin once and for all. And we really want you to chew on that. And as we're chewing on that, I want you to ask, to dwell on this question on your mind. Does the cross fulfill the function of the Day of Atonement in your life? Do you allow the cross to fulfill its role as the Day of Atonement? Just chew on that as we work through it, and let me explain this a little bit. Well, as I was in Winnipeg, I, I uh, had the chance to be a youth pastor. And someday, maybe if I come back and they'll let me, I'll tell you the story about how my junior hires threw a six-foot guy off a four-story parkade in downtown Winnipeg. Hey. But before that happened, I, I got to minister in two places in Winnipeg. I got to minister as a youth pastor in a real rich, affluent area of the city and then, and I did that for three days a week, and then what I would do is I would go down to the poorest area of Winnipeg called Point Douglas, and I would minister there. We had a church plant there that all the churches kind of helped with, and that's actually a picture of it there. And one of the hardest things about ministering in both of those settings was how do you minister to rich people and how do you minister to people who are oppressed and broken and all this stuff? It's a really interesting dynamic. And then I was really struggling with it for the first few years that I was a youth pastor. How do I do this? Until one day and it, uh, a, store, a man came in and it totally reshaped the way I thought of it. There was a man... Uh, in our church, I'm going to call him Bruce, and Bruce was an awesome man. He was smart. He was intelligent. He, had, he could carry good conversation, and I'm pretty sure that if he had the chance to live a different life, he would have. And one cold Winnipeg day, he comes in to the church high on something, and I don't know what it is. I, I just couldn't, but he says, I need to talk to Dan. I'm like, and okay, and then he comes he comes stumbling in the sanctuary and he falls down right here. And he begs me, he's like, Dan, I don't want to live this way anymore. I'm like, Bruce, we'll, we'll talk about it. We can help you. So we talked through it and, 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 I, and I said, Bruce, what, what kind of way do you want to live? What do you want more than the drugs? And he told me, you know what, Dan? All I really want is I want a nice, quiet apartment, a place where I can read books and just spend my time in safety. I don't want to be in the streets anymore. So I asked him, Bruce, how much money did you spend on drugs this weekend? 
Dan, I spent over $1,000 in drugs. And I turn to him and say, Bruce, I don't understand. I live in one of the most affluent areas of the city and my two-bedroom basement apartment is about $1,000 a month. You could have what you want right now. I could take you over. I could co-sign for you. What is stopping you from getting what you really want? And you know what he told me? And it, it totally flipped me, and I didn't understand this until he said it. Dan, I don't deserve it. I've done some bad things. And the reason that I'm here is because I'm punishing myself for it. And it totally flipped me. It flipped me because here's the deal. In church these days, we talk a lot about, there's a lot of buzzwords. Things like justice and social justice and kingdom living and freeing the oppressed. And those are good things. But you know what words I don't hear anymore? I don't hear words like mercy, grace, forgiveness, and a second change. And what my friend needed to know more than anything is that he was forgiven. He didn't need more social justice. He didn't need more programs. He didn't need more money. He probably had more money coming in from social assistance than I did. He didn't need more people advocating for him. He had access to all those things. He had drug detox programs. He had social assistance. He had people willing to tax him for prescription medication. If those things were the problem, he'd be off the street. What kept him there? What kept him there was this feeling that he didn't deserve the life that he, that he wanted so desperately. In other words, he was punishing himself and what he really needed to know was that every single solitary thing that he was ashamed of in his life was dealt with on the cross. That's what he needed. He needed forgiveness. He, needed, he not needed to know that he was forgiven, he needed to own it. He needed to know that every single solitary thing is dealt with. And I tell you that story because it illustrates why the Day of Atonement was a thing in the first place. The Day of Atonement was a day to deal with all sin. All sin. When you read through the book of Leviticus, I don't know if you've ever had that chance. It's, it's, a, it's a tough go, but if you read through it, what you'll tend to notice is that the Israelites were expected to deal with their sin regularly on a rhythmic basis. They were supposed to confess their sin and sacrifice for the sin on a daily and rhythmic time. So that kind of begs the question, if you are sacrificing for your sin and dealing with your sin all the time, why do you need a day of atonement to begin with anyway? What's the purpose of it? Well, the short answer is that not all the sin was dealt with. When you read through Leviticus, I want you to, next time you read through the book, I want you to circle every time it says unintentional. What I tend to notice about Leviticus in particular is that God not only holds you responsible for the sins that you are aware of, he, tells you, he holds you responsible for the sins that you didn't know and you see, the tendency you and I have is to look at 
the fact that we didn't know that we made a mistake and so we, do, we say to ourselves we don't do it on purpose and so it's not really an issue or there's secret sins. Things that we're so embarrassed about that we don't bother going and dealing with it at the temple or dealing with it. Those are the most painful, embarrassment, or shameful stuff. The current habits, the actions, or stuff that haunts you, that seems to be in the way every time that you raise your hands in worship or every time you pray. There are things in our life that we feel so guilty about that we cannot face, and so what winds up happening is they go undealt with. The basic underlying principle of the Day of Atonement is that the offerings for sin throughout the year could not cover the unknown or secret sins. Nevertheless, by these sins, the sanctuary of the people in the land were all rendered unclean. God could not be honored as he deserved under these circumstances. And through a series of a complex ceremony, he made atonement and asked God to uh, for, for forgiveness on behalf of all the people of Israel. The sins that we knew about, the sins that we didn't know about, the sins that were secret about, the sins that we wanted to bury. All of it was dealt with on there. It was a really complex ceremony. It was the only day the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies and he had to do a number of things. He had to prepare a proper sacrifice he would have to wear the correct attire. He would have to present an offering for his own sin. He would have to present an offering for the sin of the people, and so on and so forth. But one of the things that I find so interesting about it is the practice of the two goats. The two goats were gathered on that day. Two goats were gathered for one sin offering. And the high priest basically flipped a coin or cast lots over the goats to determine which one would die. He took some of his blood and sprinkled it onto the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat about seven times. During the Day of Atonement, the high priest would place his hand on the sacrifice, symbolizing the transfer of sin from the nation to the victim. Understand that. That is very, very important. The high priest would put both hands on the goat that stayed alive and confessed over it. Then it was led up out of the camp and released into the wilderness as a scapegoat, never to be seen again. And the animal, here's what you need to understand, the animal was a substitute for you and I in our sins. The Day of Atonement was instituted for the, for the accomplishment of annually making sure that all the sin was dealt with. Maybe a helpful way to look at it was that it's the Old Testament version of Good Friday. I don't, I, you know what, I don't actually think that's a good way to look at it. I think maybe the better way to look at it is that it's a foreshadowing of Good Friday. You and I need to understand something. You and I have a sinful nature that we are powerless to rise above. We are powerless to rise above our own hurts, resentments, unhealthy behaviors, and attempts to control. And when I come and I talk to people about sin, I hate doing it. It's the worst part of being a pastor. You want to know why? Because when I talk about sin, I can feel the room deflate. Everyone gets depressed. I don't like talking about it. But I need to because of the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Our sinful nature has brought nothing but desolation, despair, and death into this world. Every act of racism, every act of terror, every death, every natural disaster, every life that cancer has claimed, every girl sold into some sort of slavery, every product has sitting in this, this world is broken and we are the ones that broken. And we need to deal with all the sin, not just the stuff that we know about, the stuff that, or the stuff we're willing to admit. We need to deal with the stuff that we are unaware of and the stuff that we are shameful. Why? Because it breaks God's heart and he is angry about it. The day of atonement was to avert the wrath of God over our sins. Listen. I know a lot of us struggle with the idea about God being graceful and God being angry. How do those two ideas reconcile? Can I give you just, just a, a quick idea, real quick, about how to deal with that? God's love does not mean that he's never angry. God's anger is born out of his love for you. And if you think about it like that, it's not such a hard concept to understand. From a human perspective, we do it all the time. When there's someone who has an illness or someone who dies or someone that gets in a car accident from a drunk driver, there is a cry of anger. There's a cry of vindication. There needs to be something to happen. This is wrong. I need to make it right. Let me, let me see if I can explain this. I'm going to... I'm going to tell a story, and I have to be very careful how I tell the story. Maybe this isn't the best crowd to do it in, but I'm just going to ask anyway. How many, how many people here are fathers of daughters? All right. You're going to wish to put your hand out in a second. <laughs> when I was 20 years old, I, I was here at Prairie Bible College, and uh, I was being mentored uh, at that time, by a great man, his name was Van Williams, and uh, he he was helping me overcome purity issues at that time. And in do it, he told me a story about what happened in the church that we grew up in, and 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 and, and just kind of give me motivation for for what had happened. And oh, I have to be really really careful about this. All right, so in our church, there was a couple a godly couple, a godly girl and a godly guy, and they love Jesus. They love Jesus with their whole heart. And over time, you know, they went to youth group, they did the whole Bible study thing, they did the Bible college thing, and over time they fell in love and they got married. It was great. Perfect. Textbook Christianity 101 on marriage. Mr. and Mrs. Jesus. <laughs> They had their wedding, it was beautiful, and it was time for everyone to leave, and so uh, the, uh, the bride and groom adjourned to the hotel room to consummate their marriage. During that process, the new husband jumps out of bed and starts yelling at his new wife. And the reason he was yelling at his new wife was because... Her body was not what he expected it to be. And he was so angry about that that he pulls out the laptop, connects to the hotel Wi-Fi, and starts looking at hardcore pornography 
with his wife sobbing in the bed, still in her wedding dress. Now, I'm going to ask the fathers again. If that was your daughter, how many of you would, hearts would break over that? Okay, keep your hand up. I'm going to ask you another question. How many of you would be angry? Yeah, you would. If that is how a heavenly dad or an earthly dad feels about that, can you imagine what your heavenly father feels watching that? And then you multiply that experience by everything wrong that happened in her life. And then you multiply that by every human that you existed. And you can understand why God gets angry. Right now, as we're sitting here in this service, God is watching a five-year-old boy hug his pillow and drown out the sounds of his dad hitting his mom. God's watching that. Right now, there is someone trying to make it all the way up from South America to Phoenix, Arizona, and they're on a train right now, and they're probably fending for their life trying to not to get raped. God has to watch that. Every time there's genocide, every time someone dies in the street of poverty, every time someone cheats, God watches it all and it breaks his heart. Why would he not get angry? He gets angry because he loves. And that love drives him and that anger says something has to be done about this. Someone's got to make this right. It has to be dealt with. And because you and I come to the point where we not only hurt each other, we destroy each other, God's way of making it right is to say a life for a life. Blood must be spilled. Romans tells us that the cost of our sinful nature is our lives. Leviticus 17 puts it in another way. The life of a creature is in his blood. I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes the atonement for one's life. Why the blood? Because that's the severity of the stuff that you and I do. It breaks his heart. And you know what? You and I, we know that and we feel guilty over it. And no matter what we do, we cannot make it right. And even from here to eternity, I never do it again. I will carry that guilt deep within my heart because I have no way of getting rid of it. You have no way of getting rid of the shame. And my problem and your problem is this, is I don't really know how to handle the guilt. And so what we do is that we bury it and you bury yours, but it's there just the same. And we do no favors by that fact. And that's why the Day of Atonement's there. To deal with the guilt that we buried, to deal with the stuff that we're unaware of. That's why it's there. Do you know what? The best answer to our guilt is, I don't know if this is working right. You forward it to a slide. This is really weird. I guess it's a universal thing that all churches, the remotes never really work. <laughs> Do you know what our best answer to our guilt is in the 21st century? It's this. 
is that we diagnose our symptoms of our guilt as a disease, an addiction, a syndrome, or a condition. And But whenever we diagnose our symptoms as diseases, addictions, syndromes, or conditions that we have no control over, we rid ourselves of all responsibility and accept the diagnosis as life. And that does not help us one bit. Because no matter how much physiology we, we look at or psychology look like or how many 12-step programs you and I grow through, if you know you've been selfish or done something to hurt someone else, you know good and well that you've done something wrong and there's nothing that you can do to remove that. Except perhaps maybe Jesus. Do you want to, what do you suppose God's answer for the truth-based pain that we feel and guilt is? God's answer to truth-based pain is forgiveness. Because something was substituted for you. So what is the connection between Leviticus 16 and, and Jesus? And it's this, is that just like the Day of Atonement, the cross is where all the sin is dealt with. But not only is it dealt with all at once, it, it's, it's where it's dealt with once and for all. It's the final Day of Atonement. The day where it all comes and it all is deal with. Jesus died as a satisfaction against God's righteous wrath for the entire human race. And through his death and resurrection, we can find forgiveness from sins. Jesus took our place and endured the punishment humans deserve for their sin. So instead of a goat, it's Jesus Christ himself that stepped in and took your pain and punishment. Isn't that cool? I don't hear an Amen. Oh, come on, you can do better than that. Amen. 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 That's exactly what Jesus did. What is the connection between Leviticus 16 and Jesus? It's simply this, is that the cross is the true and better version of it because it's de- all sin is dealt with once and for all in its finality. And that's awesome. That's awesome. And as we enter in, we know that we're about to celebrate Christmas. And you know what's so cool about Christmas? Christmas is a promise that 30 years from his birth, God is going to take every wrong, every injustice, every bit of pain that cancer has caused, every lonely Christmas, every fractured family, and he is going to nail it to that cross once and for all. God's answer to deal with your guilt is a final day of atonement. The cross is the true and better version of atonement because it's all dealt with. So my question to you as we, as we wrap up is, do you really believe this? And I know that on an academic or heart level you, or a, a head level you believe this, but on a heart level, do you believe this? Um, <clears throat> I think there are things that you, on a hard level, you and I struggle with this concept. Why would I say that? Because there are certain things that you and I do and say that make me think that when people point out a problem or an area of brokenness in our lives, we really don't believe that the cross dealt with all of it. 
and we live in denial. There are a few times when I've said a few things that have made me feel this way, and I'm just wondering if you've caught them too. Denial, by the way, is just a refusal to believe the truth about anything, even if it's obvious to the people around you. And sometimes we actually don't think the cross has dealt with all our sin because we kind of don't address it. And sometimes we minimize it. It could kind of sound like this. You think I'm hard to live with, check out that which Jimmy has at home. And that's something I've heard at church. (laughs) Or how about this? When you bring up an issue or maybe you're not watching a movie you're supposed to, I've heard this, it's just a movie. It's not like it's X-rated or anything. It's no big deal. Or when someone puts an area of my life that I need to work on, I might deny it by saying, if it was pornography, I'd say, I'm still single. What are you supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Become a monk? I've heard that at church. Or how about this? This might be a good one for college students. If there's an area, if I'm supposed to expect to be a part of community and I'm feeling lonely and I I just don't feel like anyone cares, I withdraw, I withdraw from relationship, I withdraw from the body and I just kind of reason it out. I say, nobody cares about me, no one understands me. Or I go on and I say something like this. Someone points out some sin in my life that needs to be atoned for and dealt with and I do some blaming. You have no idea the kind of pressure I am. Or this one, this is his problem. He's the one who brings that garbage in the house. Don't talk to me about my part in that. This is my my favorite one. When people bring up an area of my life that I need to work on, I need to bring to Jesus, I deny by comparison. I say things like this, my anger bothers you, your weight bothers me. I just deflect. Or how about this one? How many of you have said this when someone's pointed something out? Now you know how, how I feel when you. Nobody said that? Uh, Got to work on the honesty in this group. <laughs> or this one. This is one is my favorite. You, you do the exact same thing. Let me, point, let me stop and point out that one for a minute. Suppose you and I are in a small group together and you come to me and point out, Dan, you talk too much, okay? And I say to you, you do the exact same thing. Does that necessarily mean he was wrong? No. It's an incredibly immature and selfish way of dealing with. These are all ways that we deny our sin. These are all ways that we hide it. And that's why the Day of Atonement exists, to deal with all the stuff that we deny, that we're unaware of, that we don't want to deal with, that we're ashamed with. And that's why the cross is so beautiful. And you know what? As Jesus is walking with his disciples and, and pointing this out to him as he's walking through it, I think, I, I don't know for sure because the scripture doesn't say, I think this was a pivot point. I think this is when their hearts burnt for Jesus because they knew that it was done once and for all. Are your hearts burning for Jesus?